0: everybody welcome to another episode of the breakpoint podcast starring myself frankie and marcus and pete pete we
1: are welcoming uh for the first time on the podcast uh he's a good buddy of mine we began playing tennis a few years ago he also played college tennis like me he played at Boston university for four years played uh what did you play there pete top three four singles
2: yeah from sophomore year onwards yeah i played three
1: awesome so uh pete is a very good tennis player and he's going to bring us a lot of expertise on today's episode um today we're going to be talking a little bit about whether or not european players um should one be allowed uh, maybe i should preface that international players one should be allowed to play Uh, american college tennis there's been a lot of discussion about that in the past few years and two whether or not there should be maybe a cap on how many players per team uh, we're also going to get uh, Frank's thoughts on that and then some questions. So th- this kind of ties into our American tennis uh, series that we just completed. So, Pete, just give us a little quick background on, on your team at BU. Um, I know that you had a few international folks as well. What was your kind of opinion and what are your thoughts on playing on a team full of internationals?
2: Well, it was definitely diverse. Of course, you have a lot of people from different cultures, things that you've never experienced before. And you have no idea how they've lived their lives up to that point, right? It was a huge culture shock for me when I first got there, meeting people from Guatemala, from China, even from California. I'd literally never been anywhere outside of New York other than Florida, for instance. So it was, it was very different to be hearing all of these different perspectives on how the game should be played, what training was like for 15 years prior. So that was big for me. While we were in training at school, once again a lot of people had a lot of opinions on how they should be doing stuff and a lot of times that caused a lot of friction as well on our team because people n- weren't used to what is considered the American way to train tennis players and a lot of coaches in college are American uh, or were American tennis players prior to so it, it it provided a lot of like I said friction at some points but It was also helpful to hear those different perspectives because then you realize there are some places where really great players are developing and they have a different way of doing things you know like if you go to south america for instance people are going to be playing on clay 90 percent of the time there's no such thing as a hard court down there right whereas in the us everybody grows up on those blue and green hard courts right uh and the only touch of clay they'll ever have is hard true everybody's favorite so no one really No one really had a set way of doing things. And I think because of those different experiences, everyone had uh, a different idea on what was the perfect way to build a team and develop players. Because a lot of these times also, you have a bunch of 18, 19-year-olds, firstly, uh, never having been in a team environment. They have absolutely no idea what to expect, and they decide, hey, we're going to try to take this the same way as juniors would be singular and very siloed in our own way. But to get that team mentality from them, you have to really foster a sort of environment of inclusion and things that can band people together, like either surrounding them with a lot of the same uh, mission or getting people to realize that they are trying to achieve a common goal, for instance. So that was something that I thought helped me a lot as well. And I think because I've been rambling for a while, but I think the the broad spectrum behind it all was that all these guys in the end of the day just wanted to play tennis because of the love of the game. Some people, of course, they go to college and they're just there to get the education, the degree. They don't really care about tennis a lot. But a lot of the guys on my team at one point in their lives, they loved the sport and Despite all the differing opinions on what th- should have been done, like whether the coaching was good or bad, or if people decided that something wasn't as good as it should be, everybody at the end of the day just loved getting out on the court and hitting balls there like, as long as possible. So,
0: yeah, I think that's that's like a very good overview of what it's like to be on a college team and and sort of the dynamics that can go into it, uh, especially when you have a group of people who are just from very very different backgrounds. And I think. Uh, The point that Pete made also about the way that you grow up playing plays a pretty big factor. Like, even within the United States, right? Like, California, we, we complain about, like, not having any clay courts or hard true. Like, we only play on hard true here. California has zero clay courts or hard true courts. So it's just, like, wicked fast, ultra dry conditions on a hard court that they grow up playing on, and, like, everything else is, like, completely foreign, effectively. Whereas at least here in New York and like Florida too, like you can get used to playing on like hard true and like really humid conditions versus really dry conditions because that's a whole different ball game in in wet versus dry. So there is at least some uh, differential that goes on there. Um, So the topic that we wanted to talk about mainly for this episode is on foreign players' Uh, on American college tennis teams. And I think the reason that this topic came to our heads was because on our American tennis series, we sort of really got into the equation of, oh, like the rise of college tennis is sort of happening again, right? We have Cam Norrie, Arthur Rindernick. um, I'm trying to think of the others that we rambled off on last time, but like Cam Norrie is the real example within the top 10 in the world now that played uh, college tennis So with the rise of college tennis, again, seeming to be like a good outlet for young players um, who hope to play professional tennis, uh, is that a good thing for American tennis or is it not necessarily going to make that much of a difference? Because if 80 to 90 percent of these teams are foreign players anyway, is that just going to be a conduit for the rest of the world to? develop and you know American tennis system is effectively paying for it or is this going to be like oh no the best players the best young players in the world are coming to America to play tennis there's going to inevitably be some level of osmosis there
1: that's a great point Frank and I think this is something that was kind of discussed during our kind of upbringing in in the junior tennis scene And, and Pete can also attest to this is that A lot of times the American players and maybe some of the American parents as well would kind of complain that, you know, hey, we don't there are not many scholarship opportunities out there for our kids because there's so many foreigners who are, you know, better than than our children. And they're taking over these scholarship opportunities. It's kind of insane to think that you can't even go to and get a scholarship within your own country, um, you know, to study and play tennis. My kind of counter argument to that is that maybe we should just get better. And I think that that is a valid, valid argument. I've always been a, propet- a, a uh, what do you call it? I guess a fan. A fan. Thank you, Frank. A fan of having international student athletes on campuses just to bring your you know, your your university diversity. It brings your team a lot of diversity. You learn about different cultures and ultimately you get to visit your friends, you know, in different places. I'm sure Pete and I could basically pin places all around the planet where we can go visit our friends now, just thanks to college tennis. And I think that sending, I think that basically kind of outlawing or putting a cap on the amount of international players per roster I think would be sending a bad message and kind of making it weaker a la, almost like a little bit like Major League Soccer for any soccer fans out there um, they have a cap on amount of foreign players that you can have per team and this is why the league is pretty weak um, just because, yeah, that's right mm-hmm. I, I know, Pete, I know this is why it's kind of weak because they're trying to throw in all these dollars, but they only allowed to have American players or people who have green cards. And now they make it, you know, they do some workarounds with getting people green card and stuff, And you're only allowed three designated foreign players per team in the MLS. So if we're going to institute something like that in college tennis, college tennis is ultimately just the, the overall levels, obviously going to go down and then the foreign people who are coming in and paying for these universities are going to be less incentivized to even come here at all um that, that's just my kind of thought on it i'm very curious to hear pete's thought on that because he also played on a team full of internationals and he also grew up here in new york just like me as an american tennis player
2: yeah i it's it's interesting because i think it's even over the ncaa's had up at this point right at least pinpointing the problem itself right because i have so many teammates that are on f1 visas to attend school, right? And then now they have to get that H1B in order to work here or they need to do their OPT something like that so that they can stay in the country while they're doing a year of work. Uh I definitely disagree with a cap on the amount of tennis players. There's just way too much talent out in the world. I mean, if you asked any random stranger on the street in New York or honestly outside of New York, Let's go to Wisconsin, right? If you ask them what sport do they watch most often, they're probably going to say football, basketball, baseball. That is; Those are the American pastimes, right? Tennis is something that's been – like, I, I don't know how much you guys think of this, but I feel like it's never been a truly Americanized sport. There's There have been waves where you have a lot of prevalence, like in the 80s and early 90s as well, but it's never been something that all of – The us could get behind like the the previous i said so if you go to spain though if you go to france and basically everywhere else in the world maybe not china per se but a lot of parts of the world they eat it up they they play so much tennis everywhere else outside the us and because of that a lot of the kids are getting into the sport really young they're training super hard and the talent pool is just incredible i mean one of my teammates, Owen, who's probably one of the best tennis players I've ever played against. He's he's an airhead, and he'll he'll play better than anyone else you've ever seen one day, and then worse than someone someone else you've ever seen one day. It, it's crazy, but the the level this guy can reach, and he's in China or he's from China, so the the fact that it's not even that big of a sport, but you can have talent like that, uh, coming from a place where it's not as popular, it, it just goes to show, right? The there is definitely so much room to add all these incredible players, in my opinion. I don't think that it would do any good to, to leave them out.
0: Yeah, I think it, it, tennis is in a very unique position in comparison to the other sports that you mentioned, right? Like American football, for example, only America plays that. There's no foreign talent pool there. If there is, they're from like American Samoa. So that's not. And your occasional
1: fake. Germans. Bjorn Vanna, shout out
0: going to ignore that um (laughs) uh basketball pretty much the same thing you know like there are some european presence but like they go to the european teams if they want to play or and then they go to the nba they're not playing college basketball really that's not like typically an option that they follow
1: you'd be surprised it's becoming a lot more popular i see i don't know about you about your bu basketball team but our hofstra team had a like i'd say 30%, 40% Thirty percent, forty percent were actually from out of the country. It started to become wow. very popular. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, basketball. Basketball is slowly becoming less American. It's becoming a very much an international game. But for the most part, still like it's American dominated. Like the best basketball players in the world come from America. You're that is not in debate. Absolutely. Yeah. So, baseball. Baseball is actually fairly international. There's a bunch of players that come from all over. But again, like baseball has a defined minor league system where players go like college baseball is not like the minor league baseball system. Like there's a, there's a separate thing for that. Tennis doesn't really have a minor league system. It's effectively the challenger tour and the set and the future circuit. But as we've discussed on this podcast before, like those suck and like, there's no money to be made there and it's really expensive. And like, you need to be able to afford to travel the world at like 16 years old and basically have somebody bankroll you in order to play tennis and that's where college tennis has a real opportunity to become effectively the minor league circuit of the ATP. And that's why I think you see the, the rise in internet, like why they're so internationally dominated. Um, it's because the talent pool for tennis is, like we've said, all over the world. International, there's no borders. So the best minor league system for tennis should be college tennis because you're getting to play a ton of matches against a ton of great players. You're completely bankrolled by a university. So all your meals, fitness, health insurance, like, all that stuff taken care of. Um, And, like, with the NIL now, you could still make money. Like, if you want to do, like, a YouTube channel, you want to, like, play, like, a few, like, they send the kids off to play, like, futures tournaments, whatever, you can still do that. And, like, by the time you come out, you have a degree. Like, your body is, like, developed. Your game is probably more developed. And you can get out and like, you know, you're still 21, 22 years old. If you want to leave earlier, you could leave earlier. And like you could go on to the professional tour and like have a pretty successful career from that. And I think that as tennis, your peak starts to become later and later, which like in our, in the beginning part of our lives, your peak in tennis was considered like 26, 27 years old. Whereas now it's very much like a three handle in front of that. Now it's
1: apparently freaking 19
0: well that's a separate there's always going to be freaks he's a freak so we're going to leave Alcaraz out of this but you know as as it becomes later and later if you have more time to develop I don't know why you wouldn't pick college tennis like for me it just seems like such an obvious choice for these younger players
2: well here's an interesting thought as well let's think about all the greatest tennis players in the history of the game right or at least the majority of them, they all were pretty early bloomers. Mm-hmm. Like Rafa, he, he came to prominence when he was 18. We, we have the nowadays example of Alcaraz, right? Uh, if we want to go really way back, Boris Becker won his first Grand Slam at 17, man. Mm-hmm. So it. I, I agree that affecting this distribution of players to have more access to schooling and training and just doing the things that will make them better players, that, that will give... A, a more of a jump into the pro tour for a lot of people that just wouldn't be able to do it because they don't have the financial means. But from the most part, we can see at least a case study in history is that some of the best players in the game they've already been at that level for years before mm-hmm. some of these guys are first playing their first futures or challengers, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, to be clear, I still think that the best players in the world will just win challengers win futures and like they'll just get right through to the tour right like yannick sinner perfect example of that where he just like went into the challengers and futures at 16 won everything and then just went straight onto the tour carlos alcaraz another one went straight onto challengers and futures bang right on the tour but i think that we also need to realize that like those guys are diamonds in the rough there's thousands of other tennis players like there's plenty of room to be a touring professional tennis player and not like win a major like that. And that's sort of where I think the college tennis Avenue can be something that, that is relevant. And even for the good players, right? If we want to go back, McEnroe played a year of college and then he went on to the professional tour. Connors, I think did the same thing. Like that was a pretty standard thing to like do one year of college tennis, try to win the NCAAs and then go on to the tour right so i i think that that avenue could start to open up again
1: yeah i think it's a i think it's kind of it should be the number one avenue unless you were a a center in Alcarez, right you're just a freak and you're just so good that it's like it would be a waste of time for you to go to college like even i think McEnroe at the time kind of realized like oh god i'm kicking everyone's ass okay i'm too good to be here like that that's just how it went but i'm interested to, the, the the main point of the discussion is that a lot of times you hear about because of the opportunity that college tennis is bringing, like we mentioned, with you know, bankrolling your finances, you've got everything covered your fitness, your tennis, etc. This is taking, in some people's eyes, it's taking away opportunities from kids growing up in America who wish to play college tennis in their own country is that something that we should be concerned about? Is that something that we need to kind of I mean there're basically two schools of thought. Is one, yeah, we can we should probably put a cap on it so that we can kind of get American players into the college system so that they can develop from there and then push them to the tour. Or we look at it the other way and say, "Hey, the American the USTA and private coaches around the country need to do a better job of developing them from ages, you know, basically 10 to 17." So, that they are good enough to compete for scholarship spots on these college teams.
2: Well, let's think about also, I, I'm not going to get into the philosophy of why the US was founded or anything, but let's think about what America stands for, right? It You want to bring the best and the brightest of whatever they do from all around the world to this country as immigrants. And that way they can help build this country even more. Like, that is quote unquote the purpose. And by n- closing your borders or closing, opportunities for the people all around the world to do that you're not staying true to that mission from my perspective right i understand that americans need to have the opportunity as well but i feel like americans wouldn't exist without all the other sources of people right so it it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to argue that you want to have a lot of a lot of american uh juniors just have higher chances to go to college because you're going to put caps on the amount of foreign players.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that that idea is also very un-American. And I think that also from like a development perspective, there does have to be a level of accountability on the USTA in their junior system and their junior development. Like ultimately the reason that we're having this discussion is because they have not been good enough. And like, we have continuously said that on this like podcast is like, the standards that we hold ourselves to as uh, in the United States for tennis have just simply not been good enough over the past like 20 years. Like ever since Sampras retired, it's just completely gone off the rails, um, and that's why the sport has become so European dominated. And I think when you think about it from a long-term perspective, right, there's going to be a lot of those foreign players who probably who are definitely better than their American counterparts who end up staying here and end up coaching tennis and that could potentially be the only exposure that American juniors are getting to a different perspective and a different way of thinking and a different way of like playing the game and that is that's the value of having like the US be the melting pot of like all these potentially different tennis styles and yeah you might have like a little bit of um pain at the start where it's like 90% foreign players or something like that but, in the long run, you're going to see all of the talent start to start start to come from the United States. And I think that that's sort of the long game that the USCA needs to think about. And any idea of like doing a foreign cap, I think would really be detrimental um, to the game.
2: yeah. I actually really love something you said as well about bringing people that, have a secondary affected to the sport because you met my childhood coach already. He's actually your alma mater. Uh, he was a player at Hofstra, right? And he's Polish, right? I would have not been close to the level that I got to as a college player or even as a junior without his guidance. And he was very un-American in his coaching style. I mean, he did things very unintuitively, very gritty. It's just completely different than what I was taught literally playing at the NTC as a 10 11 12 year old right so when i played with him i made a huge jump in my level but he wouldn't have been here if he hadn't gone to school in the US mm-hmm. because otherwise right there's no other place for him right he he started at Montana State then he came to Hofstra for 2 years after that so it is just simple as that you know you have you have more opportunity to coach great american players if you bring over the people as well that are seeing these different ideas on how to train these juniors
1: yeah, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, and that's something that I realize now in my time growing up. Obviously, I was a little bit more... Um, I, I was just blessed that I could also go to Europe every summer and also mm-hmm. play tennis, right? But a lot of American kids don't have that opportunity. And if they don't really have an experience like Pete had where we had a, a kind of a different type of mindset coming from, from Europe and how things are done there... Then he's never really going to know almost almost like what that type of success or what it takes to even achieve that kind of success looks like because everyone can watch on TV and everyone can watch, you know, an Alcaraz and a Djokovic and a Nadal and a Federer play. And we can watch and say, oh, wow, they're so good, blah, 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 right? But we don't see what's going on before that. We don't see what's going on during their offseason. We don't see what's going on during their junior years, right? How they trained... And I think that when people, like, for example, when a lot of American parents kind of read, like, I don't know if everyone's read Rafa Nadal's book, but then you kind of see how Tony Nadal treated the kid, you know, that would be, like, heinous here. But there, it's like, you know, yeah, dude, you want to be good? Like, this is how we roll type thing, right? Like, this is, this is just how things work. And I think that that's something that kind of goes along with the whole kind of American idea of, the participation trophy, that's a very big issue, not just on the tennis scheme of thing, but the overall kind of sports development for for youth uh, sports. Frank, I mean, you you probably know this since you played not only youth tennis with, with us, like us, but you also played a couple other sports like I did as well, some baseball, some soccer. Talk to a little bit about yeah, that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, for me, I was probably better at baseball than I was at tennis for most of my life. But I think the thing that makes tennis different than those is tennis is ultra meritocratic more than any other sport, right? Because tennis is individual, right? So you could be on a baseball team, your baseball team loses. But if your slash line is 300, 560, and 750, nobody cares. You hit sick like you're getting a college scholarship. If you don't play well, like, you're going to lose in tennis and, like, no one's going to care. And, like, that's just it. Like, there's very little room for a participation trophy, right? So... I think the other thing that we need to consider is that, um, tennis is really the only sport that like in America, at least like of the American sports, quote unquote, where you can go professional at like 16 years old, right? The only other one is baseball. That's it. American football. You can't do that. You have to go to college for at least two years or do something for two years, right? Basketball you have to go for at least one year of college or you could go to the G league now, but like, good luck, have fun on the Westchester Knicks. Um, and like, (laughs) and, and the last one, right. Tennis, like if you're good enough, 14 years old, you want to go play on like the freaking challenger and future tour in Kazakhstan, like go for it. Like if you can afford it, go for it. Like you can do that. And tennis is really the only sport that like an American kid could play growing up where that's a possibility soccer now also you have that chance but like that's just not developed here enough yet
2: i actually do i have wiggle room for a question here okay i'm just very curious what sparked this uh idea to to ask this type of question because uh, yeah i i know you guys know that i i play alongside a lot of international players like i had a teammate from china he's one of my best friends ever uh, I had a couple teammates from Michigan, a teammate from California. Then I had a Guatemalan teammate, a teammate from Spain, a teammate from Germany. You know, there's so, so so many people from so many different parts of the world. I, and they, they were very fortunate to come to the U.S. to play tennis. But, you know, the other 90 percent of the players at their level and even higher sometimes don't have that luxury. So, yeah, I'm just curious how you guys thought of this one.
1: This kind of came up. I mean, Frank and I have always had kind of discussions about, again, this ties into the American tennis series that we had about what can we do better. And I think that this is kind of a very important topic to bring up. And throughout my junior career, this was always a big topic of discussion as the college tennis scene really developed more and more and more and more foreigners were entering entering into the system. And you'd hear complaints from from parents, you'd hear complaints from coaches, you'd hear complaints from, you know, directors of tennis that, you know, oh, all these foreign kids are coming and taking in our scholarships and, you know, our kids, well, maybe we just need to get better, right? It's, it's a cutthroat world. Maybe we just need to get better instead of putting the blame on everybody else and actually take accountability, like Frank mentioned, where we need to take accountability for our lack of... Not even just superstardom, just generally just like good, you know, we don't need a crazy superstar. We just need someone who's going to contend for Grand Slams regularly, which we have not had since Andy Roddick, really. And that's been a long time ago. And it, I don't really foresee anybody, maybe a Sebastian Corda is kind of, but like with the way that Al Kraz is looking at all these other young players, it's kind of like we're not really fitting the bill here yeah and, you know and i just think that that's something that you know i, I don't want to hear that like we need to be better we just need to be better like there's no you can't like just eliminating the other people is not going to make your problem better if anything it should be like oh we need to get our players better so that we can beat these types of players it's like you, you know to be the man you got to beat the man yeah, thing. of
2: course. And the only way to beat the man, you got to train with them, right? You like Get into their head, see exactly what they're doing and then just do it more. I mean, why was Kobe the best or one of the hardest workers, one of the most renowned for having his mentality? Because he was doing all the same stuff, just 3x more than any person on his team. And that was it, really. It wasn't anything special. It was the consistency and everything else he was willing to do more than everyone else.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'm 100% with you. I, I think for me, the... The reason why I thought of it was that I think like different than Marcus. What Marcus says is absolutely true. But I think for me, my perspective on it is when I think of tennis, I think that one of the biggest problems that the game has is that it is really hard if you're outside of the top 200 players in the world to have a chance to be a professional tennis player and that the minor league structure and the lower end of the tennis pyramid needs a lot of work. And it needs to be fixed. And this has come up dozens of times over the past few years, with like the Novak Djokovic um, and Vasek Pospisil like player union that came out, and like should the ATP and WTA merge? Like all of these different discussions. Like it's ultimately all about that lower end of the pyramid. And I think that college tennis has a potential to be that lower end of the pyramid, which would ultimately, I think, as we've all said be great for the United States. Like all the best players in the world like at a junior age would come here to play tennis, which is awesome. And like we would get more tennis and like maybe it could be like something that we could watch on ESPN like the same way that we watch like college basketball or college football. And you know, that that's sort of what led me to this question. And like when I hear things like a foreign cap or whatever, it's just like what are we talking about? Like if the best like team in college baseball was filled with a bunch of players from like Cuba and Venezuela and the Dominican Republic. Like we wouldn't bat an eye. Like why are we all of a sudden batting an eye when like, you know, uh, because America's not the best at tennis anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately it comes down to what I know. What I think it would do is basically come down to natural selection, kind of right. So like if we have if we continue this influx of you know foreign players who are so good. And we're not going to change the rules to put a cap on it, which I don't think we should do. Then it's going to force. I mean, I mean, either we we back down, or it's going to force America and the, the USTA and all these academies and whatnot, whoever's you know kind of running the development in, in the United States, it's going to force them to think, okay, wow, we got to do things drastically different, otherwise we're
0: never going to be playing college tennis are, in our own you country. Say- are are you saying that that we might actually have to teach players that they there's more to tennis than just having a big serve and a big forehand? That sounds heinous, Marcus. I know. Marcus. I should probably watch my mouth. <laughs> yeah, no. Maybe we could do this crazy thing called develop a f- backhand. Like, what a what a wild concept. At Steve Johnson, at Jack Sock, um, at Sam Query. I'll throw him in there. Like, it's ridiculous how many American tennis players that I can name off the top of my head whose game is entirely built upon big serve, big forehand. That's it. It's actually kind of crazy, too, because
2: tennis, <laughs> tennis is— Well, first of all, that was hilarious rant, right? but let's just it's think so about tennis being a relatively simple game if you understand the geometry of the court and you know what it takes to beat literally 80% of players. But it's also hilarious to me that one of the most, if not the most dominant players in the history of college tennis, Steve Johnson, you know, went on an 80-match win streak, but then he goes pro and he can't cut it. With the best players in the world because he's just so limited right so that that's how you know that we're just totally totally putting barriers up in this whole community when we should be lowering them and allowing people to be playing
1: what you know what the uh, most amazing thing about steve johnson is is that
2: he he got up
1: to what was his career high ranking maybe like top th- top Twenty-five. I, mean, I think it was twenty-three. Like that,
0: something like right? that, right? I don't know if it was. Top, I, he was at least top thirty. Yeah.
1: Yeah, at least top thirty. Can you imagine that you are so like this is the this is what bugs me the most. I'm not looking at from the negative side, like oh he's got no backhand. It's like dude, this guy made it to top thirty in the world with only a serve and a forehand and like zero backhand. Everyone on this podcast has a better backhand than Steve Johnson. Okay, and somehow this guy still made a top 30 just imagine if just someone just one of these coaches who grew up with this guy said yeah you know what Pete? uh sorry Pete. jesus um steve we should probably work on this a little bit instead of just working exclusively under strength so yeah let's just put in some time imagine if this guy could actually just hit like 50 percent of a backhand just That's like del, like del, like del, like, del, like the end of del potro's career type backhand where he just kind of Bunted it in eighty percent of the time, flat cross court. Steve Johnson would be like a top fifteen, top ten player. There's no yeah, doubt.
2: He's got talent for days. It's crazy how how much he could have done, right? But he also had a very tough life as a professional player too. So let's not discount that.
0: Oh, I mean, I think I think the even better example is Jack Sock. Jack Sock. Jack Sock was a top eight player in the world. Top eight player in the world. One of the best doubles players. Ever, I might add, also. Still, like I would I would contend he's one of the best doubles players ever. And can't eat a backhand. Like at all. Like just zero backhand. It's it's phenomenal. And he's made of glass, which is the real issue. Is that like literally uh, like there's more durability from like a cardboard box than there is from Jack Sox elbow and wrist. Oh yeah,
1: no, that dude's softer than Charmin toilet paper. Like he's horrible. He's horrible. Thank,
0: Thank you, you for that, that ad. So Charmin is the sponsor of the podcast. <laughs> So uh, we look forward to their uh, contribution. We we look forward to wiping our asses with your toilet paper. And that's the end of the podcast. (laughs) All right. Well, this episode went off the rails really quickly. Um, Thanks for listening. Uh, We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks to Pete for joining us. And uh, we will catch you guys next time. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Breakpoint Podcast
1: 7 email BreakpointPodcast7 at gmail.com. Also uh pete's podcast the stay positive podcast big shout out to him he's got his own pod with uh with his buddy alex brebanell they do a really great job i've been on the pod they uh they talk about all sorts of topics highly recommend giving that a listen and that's going to be it for today so take it easy folks